You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. If you guys want to grab some last coffee, pastries, come on back. I love that every week I feel like it takes longer and longer for everyone to get back to their seats after the greeting time, which is great. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 today, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And if you're using one of those hardback black Bibles, that's page 1001 for you, 1001. And uh, we're in a series for Advent called Foolishness to the World. And the reason we've called it that is because so much about God is foolish to, uh, foolishness to us as humans. In our own natural way of thinking and seeing the world, we would not do things the way that God has done them. We would not have come in weakness. We would not have taken so long. We would... We could, we could not have imagined the king of creation coming in the form of a baby in an obscure town with only shepherds to share in the glory of his coming. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus came at the perfect time. From our perspective, we would have thought it was unnecessarily delayed, but the coming of Jesus was perfect, timely, and in this way it confronts our need for control in this efficiency-driven world that we live in. And today, we are going to talk about the beauty of the incarnation. And this also, in some ways, is a paradox. As Tucker read from Isaiah 53 in The Welcome, Jesus was rejected and despised. He was not seen as beautiful by those who were around him. But our passage is giving us a vision of Jesus as someone in whom the glory of God radiated. He was unattractive to his contemporaries, but in fact, he was the most beautiful and glorious person to ever step foot on this planet. And the author of Hebrews here wants us to know, wants his readers to know that Jesus is better than anyone or anything that has come before him or will ever come after. He is glory incarnate. And so let's read from Hebrews 1. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you're able, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as we'll read again, page 1001 in those pew Bibles. God's word says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power or by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go grab a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we come again another week gathered as your people, opening your word, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it us is to us as your people. We thank you that in it you reveal who you are. You tell us about your character and your plan in the world. And so now we're asking as we open it that you would help us by the power of your spirit to behold the wondrous things 
that are found here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Makoto Fujimura is a highly awarded and respected artist living in New York, and he is a leading figure in a movement called Slow Art. The materials that he uses when he does his art take a really long time to dry, longer than the average kind of painting materials, and at times he'll apply up to 60 layers in one single painting. His style of art is intentionally slow. And Fujimura is also a disciple of Jesus. Based on his own experience, he's written about how artists fill an important role within society and especially within the Christian community to confront us of our pragmatism and our emphasis on efficiency. And he once wrote, the space we need to write a song or to create a work of art requires an almost extravagant wastefulness. What he means there is that art is often something that takes a long time. It requires contemplation, patience. Often resources and materials appear to be wasted in the process. Art is an inefficient expression of our deepest affections as humans, and yet it produces the most remarkable beauty. In our efficiency-driven and significance-seeking society, the coming of the Messiah looked delayed, unimpressive, even foolish. But like an artist masterfully crafting their work, God sending his son was in fact perfectly timed, excessively beautiful, shockingly humble, and altogether wise. Fujimura goes on to say that the story of the Messiah demands more of us as Christians than living just an efficient and productive life. We are called to live a life that tells the story of the gospel. And he says that we do not do that by just living a story of pragmatism or a story of utility, but rather the story of extravagance, of gratuitous beauty, because that is the gospel, extravagant and beautiful. The beauty that you long for, the satisfaction that you crave, it is found in this story. We were made to look for, to long for, to love things that are beautiful. Our problem is that we are so often looking for them in the wrong place. So the message of our sermon today is that Jesus is better and more satisfying than anything you could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis once wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is available, offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And here's what I know about you. You long to be fulfilled. You crave meaning in life. And you want to be captivated by something so beautiful and so satisfying that you are left in awe. And I believe God wants that for you as well. And he wants to give it to you in his son, whom he has sent as the radiance of the glory of God. So for our outline today, we're going to see three ways that Jesus is better than all that had come before or anything that would come in the future. 
Jesus is a better message. Jesus is a better image. And Jesus is a better sacrifice. So first, Jesus is a better messenger. Throughout the book of Hebrews, one of the primary goals of the author is to help his readers know and to see that Jesus is better. And so throughout the letter, Jesus is often compared to aspects of the faith that they had inherited. And Jesus is presented as better than angels, better than Moses, better than priests, better than former sacrifices, and many other things. Our passage today is an introduction to this letter, and that's what the author is doing here in verses 1 and 2. He's setting up this comparison. He's linking Jesus with the faith that they had inherited. But in these last days, from verse 2, contrast the phrase long ago from verse 1. Jesus came to fulfill all that had come before. He did not come to reject all of his Jewish heritage. He came to fulfill all that the Jewish community had longed for and wanted to see happen. And the first comparison here that's being made is about how God has communicated who he is to his people. Long ago, verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. And the mention of angels in verse 4 is actually also connected to this idea because angels were one of the primary messengers of God. That's actually the meaning of the word angel in Greek and Hebrew, messengers. God has spoken through various messengers. This included angels and humans, prophets like Isaiah and Moses, patriarchs like Abraham, kings like David and Solomon. He spoke in many ways. He spoke through dreams, through audible communication, and through the writings of the scriptures. A really important aspect of our faith is an understanding that God took the initiative to communicate with us. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced C.S. Lewis's argument that we relate to God like Hamlet does to Shakespeare. And he wrote that in response to the Russian astronaut Yuri Gagarin, or sorry, Gagarin. (laughs) I practiced that and then still got it wrong before I came. Gagarin, Yuri Gagarin. He was the first human to enter outer space. And allegedly upon his return, he said, I looked and looked and never saw God. Others dispute that he ever actually said that and claim it was Soviet Union propaganda. But either way, Lewis responded to this idea, this concept, that somehow we can find God by going into outer space, like going to the second floor of a building, somehow we could find him there. And Lewis argues that we could not know him that way. In fact, it's more like Hamlet to Shakespeare. If God did not initiate, if he did not show himself to us, communicate to us his character, his nature, and his plan, we would not know him. And there's a theological term for God making himself known, and it's called revelation. If you're in a room that's shrouded in darkness and you turn on the light, it reveals what was in the room. This is the idea of revelation. It is as as if we were walking in darkness and God turned on the light in his communication to us. He revealed what was previously hidden. And there are different ways that God reveals himself. The first one is called general revelation. It is the way that all nature reveals the reality of a creator. It's what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1 when he said that God's invisible attributes can be perceived through creation. Or the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes when he said that God put eternity into our hearts. But that's not enough 
to truly and fully understand God, his character, and his plan. And so there's something else called special revelation. I'm taking you to seminary here. I'm giving you some theological terms. So special revelation, it's, it, this is when God directly speaks to us. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about in verse 1. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets. And this happened in many ways. One of them is what we call the Bible. One of the most important ways that God has made himself known to us is through the written word. Because we believe that the words of the Bible are God's words. They have come through human authors, they've come through human means, and we can see all the humanity of that. But God's Spirit carried along the authors in such a way that they wrote what God wanted them to write. And here's what I want you to know in order to understand the passage, for it to make sense. God has made himself known to us because we could not have known him. And God made himself known primarily through words, which were then written and spoken by prophets and messengers like angels. And what the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 2 is that in these last days, and it's a signal to us as a reader that something has changed, in the past days, God spoke to us through prophets. In the last days, something has changed. There's a new way that God is going to reveal himself, and this new way is Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken through his Son. Jesus is the Word become flesh, the perfect revelation of God in the world. As humans, we have this natural inclination toward spiritual things. Everywhere around the world, throughout all of history, people have tried to find their way to God. And in the early 20th century, there was a rise of something called secularism, which actively defined itself in a way that was distinct from communities of faith. It emphasized human, rational thought, observable material world. And this theory started to emerge that there could at some point be a world in which faith, religion, and spirituality are no longer a part of the dominant culture which would would have been a wild thought because just a couple hundred years earlier, very few people could have ever conceived of a world or to think about a world in which God did not exist. And now some were starting to propose and argue that it was going to become inconceivable to think of a world in which he did exist. And in some ways, the rise of modern secular rationalism, it has impacted us. We feel the effects Many in this room even have doubts and skepticism that they just maybe wouldn't have even existed several generations ago. And if that is you, if you find yourself surrounded by skeptics and as a result also struggling to believe, I just want to say that you are not alone. I don't want you to feel alone. River City Church is not a place that will shame you for your doubts and for your questions. You don't have to hide them. We can talk about them. I believe firmly that faith in Jesus is not only rational, but it is beautiful, and it is the most glorious way to make sense of this world. Many predicted that the rise of modern scientific rational thinking would become the end of religion and spirituality in the United States. But that has not happened. That's not what statistics show. Faith in spirituality in the human heart is remarkably resilient. God has put it in us. In fact, those claiming some type of religious or spiritual aspect to their life is still quite high. And according to a Barna survey, Barna survey from just last year, three out of four U.S. adults say that they want to grow spiritually. 
A significant majority of Americans desire some type of faith and spirituality and to grow in it. It's very natural to us. And throughout history, this has been an important part of humanity. Every faith, religion, and worldview is trying to find their way to God. And there's a keen awareness of a creator when we see something like a beautiful sunrise, the grandeur of snow-capped mountains, and the complex design of the human body. And so we want to find a way to this God. And some religions have suggested that he is found best by emptying ourselves of all desire and self-interest, that we find God by emptying ourselves. Other religions propose and suggest that we find God through practicing certain rituals and certain rules, that we find God by becoming a better version of ourselves. And what makes Christianity unique is that God initiated and that he came as a human. What a heavy weight we would have to bear if we were the ones who needed to initiate. What an impossible burden it would be to bear if we were the ones who had to sustain our faith through our own effort and our own wisdom. But God initiated. He revealed himself first through messengers in the Old Testament, through angels and prophets, and now in the coming of Jesus, we have a better messenger. You don't have to set out on a journey by yourself to find God. He has come to find you. And not only is Jesus a better messenger, but he is also a better image. Verse 3, the author gives us two descriptions about how Jesus reveals God more fully, and he says that one, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and two, he is the exact imprint of his nature. In the garden, when God created humanity, we were made in the image of God. We were given a mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with God's image. But that vision was corrupted. It was tarnished when Adam and Eve rejected God and ate from the tree that they were not supposed to eat from. And as a result, God had to send a better image, a clearer imprint of God to become the human that we cannot be. The coming of Jesus is beautiful because in the baby at Bethlehem, God himself came. The one who made the world came to live within his creation. And the two statements in verse 3 work together to say some similar things about Jesus as a better and more perfect image of God in the world. And the first of the two statements says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The word radiance here is used of light that radiates from the sun. That's the image we're meant to kind of get in our heads. When you walked into the building this morning, the sun, the light of the sun, illuminated your path as you walked in. If you had come here last night in the middle of the night, if there were no artificial street lights, it would be dark. It'd be hard to see. Even with the street lights, it would be hard to see. Not nearly as bright as the light that comes from the sun. And the word, uh, the, the word radiance here is used to bring that to mind. Light radiating from the sun. If God's glory in this analogy is the sun, the source from which something radiates, then the coming of Jesus is like the light from the sun, the light that warms our world and lights our days. And in the same way that the light of the sun is in many ways the sun itself, it's hard to actually distinguish the two when you think about it, Jesus came as God, not distinct from God, but God in human flesh. 
But somehow, in his coming, he shrouded God's glory in such a way that we could interact with him. Like rays of the sun are still the sun, just in a muted form that we can interact with. So also Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The second image that the author gives us here is of an imprint. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The word imprint brings to mind the practice of sealing something with melted wax. People would make an imprint of their own seal. and When they pressed their seal into that wax, it would leave an imprint behind. The imprint would be the exact shape, dimension, and contour of that seal. It would, it would carry all of its parts. Each, each turn, every aspect of it would be imprinted exactly like the seal. Humanity was created in the likeness of God. We were made in his image, but Jesus is the exact image and nature of God. He is a better image in the world. And there is nothing or no one who could better reflect God's nature and glory than Jesus. The letter of Hebrews was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and they would have been familiar with all the Old Testament references to God's glory as it appeared in the world. And God's glory is seen as intimidating, overwhelming, amazing, scary, and wonderful all at the same time. Like the Grand Canyon, when you step up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, it is awe-inspiring and frightening. It is beautiful to see, and yet you know it's a hundred feet down, and if you went over that edge, it would be the end of your life. Or like the sun, is both mesmerizing and menacing. It provides life to our planet, and if you got too close, it would burn you in an instant. God's glory is like that. There's a story in the Old Testament about Moses asking to see God's glory. And keep in mind, Moses spoke with God at the burning bush. He received the commandments from God on Mount Sinai. He was one of very few humans who had such significant and prolonged interactions with God. And in Exodus 33, he asked to see God's glory. And God said that he would pass in front of Moses, but, verse 20, He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God is saying that if you come into too close of proximity to me, you're going to die. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's glory was so overwhelming that Moses could not have truly seen or experienced it without being utterly destroyed. There's another story in the Old Testament that would spring to mind for these first readers from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had this wonderful vision of God that totally changed his life. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe is filling the temple. It's this glorious scene. And around the Lord, there are seraphim singing his praises, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah knew in an instant that he was not worthy to be in the presence of God's glory. And so he says in verse 5 of chapter 6 in Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. 
when Isaiah came into contact with the glory of God, he was wrecked because he saw the absolute goodness of God. And in comparison, he knew that he was broken before him. What Isaiah experienced here is worth our time to consider. It's very natural for a person when they become aware of our desperate need for God's mercy to respond in this way. This would be the natural response if we understood and took the time to consider. I don't want to dismiss it too quickly because one of the ways we often try to comfort ourselves in our distress about our unworthiness before God is to minimize his holiness, to try and ignore it, to try and soften the blow by emphasizing other aspects of who he is, aspects like his compassion. But as a result, we neglect his glory. There's something really important about allowing yourself to feel the immensity of God and to contemplate in response our tiny existence, to consider our rebellion against him and to admit that we are unworthy of his presence. If you try to ignore that feeling, it won't just go away. It will create dissonance in you and it will keep you captive to the shame that you feel at your own inadequacy. Denying God's glory is not the way to release you from that prison. And because God is compassionate and gracious, he does not want you to be crushed by your shame. That's what we see here in the story of Isaiah. After Isaiah is wrecked by his unworthiness, one of the seraphim flies over to Isaiah with a burning coal from the altar, and he touched it to Isaiah's lips. And he said in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah knew he was unworthy, and God decided to make him worthy through the atonement of the burning coal. God knows that his glory on full display would destroy us, and so Jesus came as the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He came so that humanity could have what Moses asked for, to see God's glory. He came so that humanity could experience the impossible, so that we could know God. And the third way that Jesus is better than all that had come before is that Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus came in beauty and he came in glory, and it says in verse 3 that he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. In the intro, the author of Hebrews here is giving us a simple and short statement. Jesus made purification for sins. And then that idea is going to be fleshed out extensively within the letter. One of the ways to think about purifying something is the process of removing contaminants, removing things that have made it impure. That's something that is done, for example, at a water filtration plant. They remove all sorts of impurities and toxins from the water so that what we drink is healthy and purified. A year ago, the state of Minnesota announced that they were using funds from a settlement with 3M to become the first state to employ a new technology to remove PFAS pollutants from drinking water. Now, I do not fully understand how this works, so I will not even pretend to explain it to you. But from what I read, PFAS pollutants are also known as forever chemicals. Here's the problem with these forever chemicals. Once they're in the water, as the name suggests, they are incredibly difficult to get out. So after I read that, I actually got a little scared. I'm hoping the new technology works because I don't know what's in my water. But in a similar way, we have contaminants in us. 
which the Bible calls idolatry and sin. And in this way, you can think about sin as anything that is contrary to God, anything that is contrary to His nature. This includes worship and devotion to anything other than God. It is the anger and the resentment that we harbor toward others, and it is the lying and the lust that we give into on a regular basis. And the reason it is sin is because it violates the purity of God's character. It is as if the holiness of God, His beautiful, glorious, and perfect character is pure H2O. But when sin entered the world, it created contaminants in us. And the question that has plagued humanity ever since is how do we once again become pure? How do we rid ourselves of these contaminants? Well, in the Old Testament, that happened through sacrifice, through daily sacrifices and an annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It came through the sacrifice of bulls and goats, and it was always requiring the shedding of blood. But it was an insufficient sacrifice. It required priests to do it over and over again. And this led the author of Hebrews to describe this old system as a shadow of the good things to come in chapter 10. He went on to say that those sacrifices can never truly make someone pure, which is why they need to be done continually. It is like water that is purified at one moment, but immediately new contaminants are found. When Jesus came, he made purification for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. And the act of sitting down is a statement about the completion of that sacrifice. If you're not done with something yet, we often stay standing, ready for action. But Jesus sat down as if to say, it is complete, it is finished. This sacrifice is sufficient in a way that former sacrifices never were. Jesus did what former sacrifices could not do. He fully and finally made purification for sin. And he did it by becoming the sacrifice for sin that we truly need. Pastor Tucker read from that Isaiah passage during the welcome, and in that passage, Jesus is described as the servant from Isaiah 53, whose form had no majesty, who had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, he was rejected, and he was one from whom others hid their face. It is a paradox that the glory of God came in a person, and that person became a sacrifice for us. We've called this sermon the beauty of the incarnation because in Jesus, the glory of God dwelt. He was the most beautiful and glorious person to have ever walked the planet. But the way he made purification for sins, dying on a cross, required him to become marred beyond comprehension. By the world's standards, he had no form or beauty. He was despised and rejected. Others hid their face from him. He was repulsive to his contemporaries, requiring them to avert their gaze. And how is it possible to be both the glory of God and detestable to the world? The means by which he made purification required him to become a sacrifice. And in God's economy, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf did not steal from his glory, but it worked in such a way that it increased his majesty and his beauty. And he did it so that we could be made pure. All contaminants removed. He died as the one who was impure and polluted so that we could be made clean and pure. And here's what I hope for you today. That you would redefine 
what is truly satisfying, beautiful, and desirable. Because God measures those things differently than the world does. And too many of us are using human wisdom and standards to determine what is beautiful. It will change the way that we see the things of the world. It will change the way that we see ourselves if we come to understand how God sees us. Because one of the deepest fears we have is not just that we would be undesirable to the world, but that we would be found undesirable to God himself. We long to be seen, to be fully known, and then to be declared beautiful and desirable. But we fear that God will see us the way that the world sees Jesus, despised and rejected. And when we see the pollution of our own hearts, we will wonder if God could ever desire us. How could he? And that is why we needed a better sacrifice. Jesus was despised by the world, but beautiful and desirable to God, so that we, who had despised God, could become desirable and beautiful to him. It's easy to miss God's glory and beauty because we define it so different than he does as humans so often. The foolishness of the world looks for glory and beauty in high places and extravagant processions. When an ancient king would arrive to one of his cities, he was accompanied by this massive assortment of people, many of whom were there simply to make a display of this king's glory, to blow the trumpet, to announce his arrival, to carry banners and gold. We would have expected the king of the world to come to a more significant city than Bethlehem with a more glorious announcement than shepherds in a field. But even though Jesus was born in obscurity, lived with humility, and died as an outcast, the Bible says he is glorious and beautiful. Jesus is better and more satisfying than anything you could ever imagine. River City Church, I am praying that we would become convinced that that is true this Christmas. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.